Hello, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Podcast, where our desire is to help others find meaning and mission in following Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new sermon series, Acts Church on the Move. In this series, we follow the expansion of the early church. Even in the midst of persecution, we see the church experience tremendous growth through the power of God and staying faithfully committed to the Word and community. New Reality is the title of the message today. And it's because we see sort of a transition take place in the book of Acts, a new reality um, for the early church. Now, up until this point, what we have studied so far, um, outside of the Holy Spirit coming down during the day of Pentecost and all of the wonderful, wonderful things that took place there, of course, we know that the early church was um, uh, abounding in a lot of different things, weren't they? They were abounding in love for one another. They were growing in the word daily. They were meeting together. Uh, they were selling their own property. They were giving to one another, sort of this Christian communist thing going on, and they were providing for one. I'm not promoting communism, but you know what I mean? This idea of, uh, of sharing and, and selling their properties and giving to the needs of others, and, and it really was a wonderful time. Think about it. 3,000 people coming to know the Lord, being baptized, added to those 120. Uh, they're new in their faith. They're finally understanding the Old Testament, the Torah, with new eyes. They're understanding that the Messiah has come. They're looking forward to his return. They thought it was imminent. At that point, they thought he was going to return, and, and meeting together just man it was just a wonderful wonderful time and that was their reality but a new reality was coming and the new reality was that soon very soon things were all going to change and we're going to see that happen in chapter four today uh, chapter 3, where we were last week, we saw uh, Peter and John going to the temple to pray, and they met a lay man on the way. He stuck out his arm, and he asked for alms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. And th- uh, you don't know that one? I've, okay, it's a song. Anyway, I wasn't just rapping right now. <laughs> There'd be more of a beat. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, that's the, the, the story. In a, you can listen to it if you weren't here last week. But he went, and, and he healed this man, and, and all of these wonderful things were happening. It was just incredible. This man who had been lame uh, from his mother's birth was uh, 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 from his mother's birth from his birth uh, it was leaping and he was walking around he was praising God and he went into the temple remember that's the first thing he did he'd been banned from the temple because of his uh, his deformities but now he went right into the temple and he's praising God and all of these incredible things were happening but a new reality was about to set in and the reality was is that persecution was about to come to the church they had enjoyed sort of this little time of just wonderful just peaceful time But now persecution is about to come, and we see that happening in chapter number four. Now, I want you to imagine yourself there, okay? You're in the temple. You're in the area. You're in a place called Solomon's Porch. Solomon's Porch was an amazing place. It was like just a covered area in the temple compound. It had white pillars that were 60 feet tall, 30 meters high, and it connected a roof that was made out of cedar, ornately carved and and it was a beautiful place and you could fit hundreds even a thousand people underneath this what they call the portico or this porch of Solomon and so imagine this man who had been healed there Uh, Peter and John now have preached to the crowd there's all these people gathered they wanted to see this man Uh, last week we saw how he went from lame to fame because everybody wanted to know his name they want to know what was going on and so now they're gathered they're listening Uh, Peter uh, had preached salvation through Jesus Christ the crowd was still there they were listening But we also saw that there were some other people in the crowd who weren't as enthusiastic about it. 
There was the high priest, there was priests, there was uh, scribes, there was Sadducees specifically were mentioned here, as well as the captain of the temple guard. They were standing and they were listening. And I really believe that if you were in the crowd, if you saw them, you could see the anger all over their face as a, <laughs> at what was taking place. They were upset that these uneducated fishermen were receiving such an audience from the people. And so as Peter and John began to preach, uh, were continuing to preach, those that were there uh, sort of hatched a plan or came up with an idea to silence these men. And we begin in chapter 4 and verse number 1. It says, And as they spake unto the people, that's Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, say that with me, Sadducees, we're going to talk about them in a minute, and the Sadducees came upon them being grieved. That means that they were like physically in like distress. That's what it means. They were physically distressed. Why? That they taught the people. And here's the key. And preached uh, through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In verse number three, and they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day for it was now eventide. So these religious leaders, like I mentioned, specifically the Sadducees, uh, they see these thousands of people listening, and they, of course they had heard about what had happened the day of Pentecost, and so they're like, wow, the crowd is starting to grow here. They took note of it, and to them it became a major threat. The teachings of Jesus Christ were a threat to the Sadducees. Now, during the time of Christ, there were two distinct religious groups. We're going to do a little bit of background here today. There were two distinct religious groups. There were the Sadducees and the what? Pharisees. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those were the two uh, religious ruling classes uh, of the day. Now, both groups honored Moses and they honored the law. So understand that. They both uh, believed it. They both honored the law and the teachings of Moses, uh, which, of course, was where the law came from primarily. But they also had a measure of political power. So there wasn't a lot of differentiating between, you know, church and state. I mean, it was all one thing there in Jerusalem. Those two groups and the Pharisees and the Sadducees made up what was called the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, you've probably heard of that before. The Sanhedrin was a 70 member, uh, essentially a Supreme Court of, of ancient Israel. And it had both Pharisees and it had both Sadducees as a part of uh, the Sanhedrin. Now, they rarely worked together. It's kind of like politics today, you know, when you have like a minority government, you have your other governments, and they're screaming at each other, and they're trying to get their own. It was the same idea. They all, both had their own uh, desires that they wanted to see, and they rarely came together, but recently they had come together, and the reason they had come together was to work together to make sure that Jesus Christ was stopped. Isn't it funny how people will rally around a common love or a common hate? <laughs> And that's what happened. They came together because of their hate for Jesus, and they then uh, succeeded. He was crucified. But even though they had worked together at that point, they had significant differences. Now, when it came to their relationship to Jesus Christ, just as just some teaching time here, I want you to understand, when it came to the Pharisees, they opposed Jesus for religious reasons. Now, this is a good thing to notice about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the Pharisees, they opposed Jesus because they had religious differences with him. But the Sadducees, they opposed Jesus for political reasons. So Pharisees, religion, Sadducees were very political people. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the, the Sadducees more uh, this morning because they're directly connected to what is happening here. Because it's interesting. During the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, it was the Pharisees who were constantly going after him. You might remember that from our study in the life of Christ uh, back in 2017. Some of you might remember that. When the whole life of Christ, it was always the Pharisees who were going after Jesus. Uh, but 
in the book of Acts, what we are going to notice is that the Sadducees are the ones who are more involved in, uh, in the persecution and going after the believers. And it's because they saw this movement of Christ. They saw the believers as a threat to them politically. Remember, they were all about the politics. And so the book of Acts, the, most of the persecution is uh, uh, from the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had some interesting beliefs. They were very um, materialistic in the sense of everything was about what you could see and touch and feel. They did not believe in evil spirits. They did not believe in, uh, uh, they did not believe in uh, angels. They, did not, they denied the supernatural. And the big thing for the Sadducees is that they denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied that completely. That's why they were sad, you see. Anyway, that's okay. Some of you are waiting for that. That's <laughs> uh, one way. They were sad because they did not believe in the re- of the resurrection of the dead. So they felt that this life was what it was. You're dead and you're gone. Uh, and so you got to understand, when the apostles and the 3,000 people that were saved were going out preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you can see why they would not like that, number one. And second of all, the vast amount of people that were coming to Christ was a threat to them politically. So I want you to think about this for a minute. This is really interesting. Jerusalem, we believe at that time, Jerusalem was about 50,000, and estimates are hard to figure, but about 50 to 75,000 people that lived in Jerusalem non-feast times. Now, feast times, it could go to hundreds of thousands of people added to that, but non-feast times, 50 to 75,000. Now, what we know just from the book of Acts, just what we've read at the beginning, we know immediately 3,000 people came to know Christ and were baptized. It became a part of this new movement. And then what we see here in Acts chapter uh, number four, verse four, what we're going to discover is that even more people came to Christ. Look at verse four. And, and this is what I love. Because even though the religious people were against what they were preaching, and they were, I mean, it was, it was against everything they believed, to the people that were listening, this was new life to them. Look what happened. It says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Now, this is not like a sexist way of counting or anything, but that's how they would often do census or, or, or a way of keeping track of numbers. They would count the men. So what we would understand that to be is that if a man came to know Christ, we would assume that he would lead his family as well, right? Would point them to Jesus Christ, would, would put in the effort to lead his family. So we're talking here not just 5,000 men. Now, we're talking maybe 15,000. I, I, you know, you get what I'm saying? That's how we kind of guesstimate and understand numbers. So we're talking about a lot of people here that came to know the Lord that now became a political threat to the Sadducees. So again, if Jerusalem is 50 to 75,000 people and then 15,000 maybe to 20,000 people have come to faith in Christ, we're talking 10 to 20% of the population like that in a few weeks. So to the Sadducees, it was a political threat. Today, it would be like in Vancouver, 700,000 people live in Vancouver. If 140,000 people came to know Christ in the next week, how awesome would that be, by the way? <laughs> we should pray for that. 140, imagine if 140,000 people, I bet you one of your neighbors would come to know Christ, right? I, I bet you the, uh, the politicians would be a little concerned. Like, what's going on here? All of these Christians in Vancouver. It would be like in the lower mainland, 500,000 people coming to know Christ in just a short amount of time. So this is not a small thing. And that's why the Sadducees were starting to take notice and why they were getting upset because that could be a political threat to them. And so they heard them preaching the resurrection of the dead. They saw these thousands that are coming to them. They, they saw it as a threat. And so they're like, we've got to do something to shut these guys down. And so they come up with this plan. Look at verse number five. It says, and it came to pass on the morrow, that's the next day, that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, interesting, all those guys are related, 
<laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. And as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, so a whole bunch of family connections here, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power, I love this question, or by what name have ye done this? So I want you to imagine the situation again. Peter and John, and I'm assuming that the lame man, no, no longer lame, the ex-lame man, uh, he's really cool now, he, uh, <laughs> he was with them. I imagine that he was in prison as well. So the next morning, they pull him out of prison. I've never spent a night in prison, praise the Lord. Some of you have, but praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, wait, I, never mind, we won't do it. <laughs> I want to do a show of hands. No, uh, uh, but uh, I've never spent a night, but I can imagine it's not super comfortable, you know, and you're not going to show up real like, woohoo, there's a great night's sleep, you know. And, uh, and so they came in, and they bring him before the, the Sanhedrin, and they come in there. And the Sanhedrin was very interesting. The Sanhedrin was a very intimidating situation. I want you to look at this. This is kind of an illustration of what it was like. This was the Sanhedrin and the temple court. So this is part of the temple court here. So what would happen is that you can see here, maybe you can't see it, but the guy who's uh, uh, dressed in black, he is the accused. Uh, and what they would do is he would stand before the high priest, as you can see, and the 70 members would be in like this half circle around you, and you'd be kind of in the middle, surrounded on every side. And then it had these tiers where guys would be sitting, and they'd be sort of over top of you, and you would stand there, and they would begin to accuse you or, or b basically bring judgment upon, uh, upon your life. And so we see Peter and John coming there, standing in front of these uh, religious elite, political elite, uh, these would have been the high-powered, you know, wealthy people, really nice suits, you know, and they're the ones in work boots and flannel, you know, uh, standing there, like, as far as the socioeconomic differences. And they are here, and they begin to accuse them. And these are the men. Think about it. These are the men in the Sanhedrin here that Peter and John and the, 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 the ex-cripple man, these are the ones that they would have been raised to respect and give honor to. I mean, their whole lives they would have said, well, that's the Sanhedrin. That's who we look up to. These are the ones that we uh, maybe even want to be like or we hope to be like someday. And so now they're here and they're being intimidated and they're trying to bring fear into their hearts. Remember, these were the same men who had just tried and condemned and crucified Jesus Christ just a few months before. So now they're standing there and they're thinking, is that going to be my fate? Am I going to be condemned? Am I going to be crucified now? For most of us to be in a situation like that, I mean, we hate it if our boss sends us an email and says, come to my office, I need to talk to you. <laughs> uh, whoa, you know, in the principal's office, right? I mean, that's terrifying to us. Imagine being in a situation where literally your life is in the hands of these men who you know already are not your biggest fans. And so for Peter and John, what we see them in is in a position that the new church had not yet experienced, and that was they were in a position of persecution. They're in a position of persecution. And I wonder if they remembered what Jesus said that we know back in John 15, when Jesus said to them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I wonder if they thought about that passage. Jesus had warned them. Jesus had told them persecution is going to come. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, Therefore, the world hateth you. If you want to understand why non-believers do not often accept Christians, 
this is the reason right here. You are not of this world. And it's recognized. They see that in you. Many of you have lost friends and you have lost people. When you became a Christian, people abandoned you that you thought would never abandon you. Listen, it's because you are no longer of this world. Because you are changed. You're a new creature in Jesus Christ. And you are called out by him. And then he said in verse 20, remember the word that I said unto you. This is what Jesus said. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What a clear phrase for us as believers to understand that we are going to go through persecution. We are going to go through persecution. Do not think or be deceived that you are greater than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who underwent great persecution. That's what he's saying. You will go through persecution and Peter and John are now beginning to experience it and maybe remembering what Jesus said if they persecuted me they're going to persecute you and so now we see Peter and John in this first wave of persecution and what I want to show uh, and really talk about the most for the rest of the message today is how they responded to this first wave of persecution and, and for me I want to learn from this I want to be inspired by it and I want to emulate the way they respond in my own life because like I mentioned we are going to go through persecution 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now today in Vancouver, in Canada, we are largely protected from persecution. We really are. But if you were to even just do basic research, such as Googling Christian persecution around the world, you will be amazed at what is happening all around our world today. Persecution is not going down. It is accelerating at a great pace all around our world. Now in North America, we kind of live in this bubble, but the truth is, is that that bubble will soon be burst. And I believe that. We see that already in even some of our political realms of laws being put into place uh, that will limit or hinder a Bible believer from believing what the word of God has to say. And so we recognize it's going to start maybe at that realm, but it will accelerate, it'll grow more, and we will be facing far more persecution than just our coworkers making fun of us or not getting invited to a birthday party, right? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Uh, like the idea of like being left out, and we've all been through that. Unsafe friends of ours begin to leave us out and drop us out, and that's hurtful. Of course it's hurtful. But listen, much more is coming. Much more will be coming, and we know that it will be. And so when that time comes, I really believe in my lifetime, we will experience widespread persecution of believers in our country. I do believe that. Um, and, uh, and so what are we going to do when that happens? What are we going to do when that happens? What are we going to do when a coworker criticizes you? Or when something happens within your extended family? How do we respond? And that's what we want to learn from Peter and John as they're standing in front of the Sanhedrin. And so number one in your notes, you can write down, let's look at the response to the persecution. The response to the persecution in verse number eight through uh, verse number 10. And I love this. And Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. Woo, man, he got some right there. <laughs> look what he says, filled with the Spirit. Said unto them, I love this. Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is crazy. He says to these guys that, are, that have the power of his life, he says, hey, you're the ones who crucified Jesus, but by the power of Jesus of Nazareth, this old crippled dude here is standing before you today because of him. 
Man, he just went right after it. And then look at verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Now, this is really cool. He's talking about Jesus Christ and how Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one in ancient building techniques. They would put down this cornerstone, and from that stone would be the guideline for everything else. It would be the key to what would be built. And he's saying to them, you guys missed out on the fact that Messiah has already come. And you've missed it out. You, you've, you've rejected it. But then in verse 12, he says, neither is there salvation in any other. He's talking about that cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That's why we sing that song, Christ alone, cornerstone. You're like, what? I don't get this. Now you know, okay? <laughs> he's, he's the main thing, Christ alone. And he, then he says this, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Man, this is so awesome to read. And you know what? I don't think anybody in that Sanhedrin expected that Peter would have responded like that. I really don't. I think they were like, "Woo! <laughs> what is going on? I think they were confident that these fishermen were going to just sort of cower, you know, and sort of back up and like, so sorry, <laughs> you know, I'm so sorry. We will go back to Galilee. You don't have to worry about us again. You'll never hear from us again. But Peter here addresses them directly. He places the blame for the death of Jesus Christ upon them. And for good measure, he throws in the resurrection just to tick off the Sadducees. That's what I think. And just put it right in their face. And then on top of all of that accusation, he then comes back in verse 12. And he says, there's no salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that is Jesus Christ. And he just puts it right out there for him. How powerful is it to see Peter, who once cowered in fear to a little, uh, little girl, now standing in front of these guys and preaching the gospel? It makes me so thankful that God, uh, Jesus, gave Peter a second chance to live for him. And that he confronted him about his sin and that he came back to him and Peter had that new and that second chance, uh, that place of restoration. And so he responds by preaching the gospel to him. But then how did the Sanhedrin respond? Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, (laughs) they what? Marveled. They marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, the guy just standing there, look at this. They could say nothing against it. They could say nothing against it. This is so incredible. They literally could think of nothing to say. I think you could cut the tension with a knife in that room after Peter just ripped on him and then he was like, you know, <laughs> what, right? As he just sort of stepped back. And, uh, and you could, I mean, I feel, you know, maybe just hear like a, <clears throat> you know, everybody sort of adjust their robes, you know, and they kind of look around. Who's going to say something? Even Caiaphas, even Caiaphas, the one who with his words sealed the fate of Jesus Christ, had nothing to say. And so what they did is they dismissed them and they kind of had a huddle up. They had a huddle up. We see that in verse number 15. Because Luke tells us what was in the huddle. You say, how does Luke know what was going on in the huddle? Well, there was probably a leak, you know. <laughs> there was a leak in the, in the government and uh, told him what it was. Or, this is interesting, Gamaliel, some of you have heard that name, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a teacher of eventually the Apostle Paul, Saul. Gamaliel was a part of the Sanhedrin. So, a lot of people believe that maybe Gamaliel later on told Paul, Saul, what had happened. And later on, Saul told Luke because Luke and Saul and uh, Paul traveled together. So anyway, either way, we know what they said. Look what they said in verse 15. <laughs> and when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle, <laughs> notable, they're not denying it. 
a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest, it's revealed to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We knew that guy who was outside the gate beautiful. We knew him. We can't deny that he's now standing in front of us after 40 years of being crippled. Verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. They huddled up (laughs) and they decided we can't deny it. And we see here the men who were to be the ones who preserved the truth of God for the people, the ones who were to teach Israelites about God and how they could trust him and that he was all powerful. We see those same men be so concerned with protecting their own interests that they were willing to deny a, in their words, notable miracle, (laughs) something that they actually saw, but yet to serve their own purposes, they were willing to deny it. What a picture of our world today. There are many people who are confronted with the truth of God, and yet they remove it. They push it away. They deny that it's even there. It shows to us that unbelief is an actual decision that people come to. They were given irrefutable proof, but they decided, they chose, we are not going to believe it. We're not going to believe it. That speaks to the free will of man. And so they chose that we're not going to do this. And so we come to verse 18, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. And so they come in and say, do not speak in Jesus' name anymore, you know. How dare you? Don't you ever do that again. And then they all wait to see what Peter's going to say, right? Because <laughs> he just gave it to them before. So it's quiet in there. They're going to see. They're, what they're hoping for, guaranteed, they're hoping that, uh, that Peter and John, again, would just be thankful that they weren't punished any more than that. And okay, thank you very much. But I want you to see verse 19 and 20. This is so powerful. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Meaning, if it, if it comes down to us following God or following you, you're going to have to judge on this. But then look what they say in verse 20. For we cannot, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Before, it was an impressive thing, but if there ever was a mic drop in, 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 uh, in the New Testament, this was one of those moments. We cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard out apostles out you know we are we are gone i love this the, the, peter and john unified in spirit they respond to them without a hint of compromise they respond uh, um, in such a way by telling them that we cannot help but speak of it there was no negotiation there was no like well how about if we just talk about it on sundays we won't talk about it anywhere else just on sundays we'll talk about it Oh, that's kind of like us today, isn't it, right? <laughs> we'll only talk about Jesus on Sundays. We won't talk about it at work. Uh, um, or, or what if we just do it on the outskirts of town? We'll stay out of the temple, I promise. We'll promise we won't do anything at Solomon's porch anymore. We'll clean up the mess from the crowd. We won't do anything, you know. Uh, we'll just talk about it uh, outside of town or, 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 or whatever it may be. They could have just said that, but instead they said, We're, we would rather obey God than just you. And praise the Lord, that's been the resolve of the early church. Uh, and the church continuing on for the last 2,000 years. The resolve has been that we are going to preach and teach Jesus Christ. Even if others are trying to silence us, we're going to do it. 
we're going to preach and teach it because that's what we are called to do. And that was their response to the Sanhedrin without compromise. It was with integrity, with bold confidence that God had revealed to them and the message that they were to spread. And amazingly, this is amazing to me, amazingly though, the Sanhedrin then released them. Look at verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, now we don't know what happened here. I'm going to cut your tongue out. I don't know, you know, something. They threatened them in some way. They let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Because, I mean, what are you going to do, right? Like, oh, yeah, we were, you know, because, and we'll notice this, because of the people, right? All of those people who had seen the miracle. So then they kill the guy who healed the lame man. I mean, we have some more political issues, right? We'd have an unrest going on. And so they couldn't do anything about it. Verse 22, uh, sorry, uh, f- uh, because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. The crowd, everybody there glorified God for what had happened. Verse 22, for the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And to me, this is an incredible response that we see during this first moment of persecution. And to me, it's a powerful challenge to us to be bold today, you know? We've got to be bold. We cannot be afraid. We must have confidence. We must be willing to share the truth when we are questioned about our faith. You know, for us, we're not going to be dragged in front of a court uh, at this point. But there may be a coworker and says, hey, why do you go to church on Sundays? <laughs> Might as well be a court, right? What am I going to say? Listen, we've got to be bold, church. We've got to be bold. We've got to tell them. Well, it's because <laughs> of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. We have to be willing to share our faith. When you're at that awkward family dinner, you know, and, uh, and they say, oh, you're a Christian. Why don't you say grace? You know, it's just like this sort of thing, right? Pre- pray the gospel. Pray the gospel, be bold, instead of rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. You know, say, Lord, we thank you for your salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. For You know, I mean, right? Don't be weird about it, but, I mean, there's ways that we can be bold about our faith. And so uh, they were bold, they shared the truth, and, and it's inspiring to hear this. I love reading about Peter and John, especially Peter, because that guy, I just, I feel like I can relate to him a little bit, because he just lets it rip sometimes, and he just, he just goes for it, and, and I love that. Not that I can relate in, in that, I'm that way, I relate in the way that that's how I want to be, you know. <laughs> I want to be bold with faith, and I want to share the truth, and, and when I read this, it inspires me, but at the same time, it scares me a little bit. To be honest, it does. It scares me a little bit. Because I do have a hard time seeing myself stand up for the Lord in that way. And I think definitely we can all relate to that. The fear that we have connected to putting ourselves out there and telling others, yes, I do believe there is a God. (laughs) Yes, I do believe that he died for my sin and you're a sinner and he died for your sin too. And we struggle with those fears. And so it, it brings me to the question, what led these men to have such boldness like this? What was it about them that gave them the strength to stand up to those trying to intimidate them? And this is where we come to point number two, the reason for the response. I want you to see this. Take just a moment here, and then we'll be done. Let's look at the reason for the response. They were able to stand with boldness. They were able to proclaim the truth. Here's why. Because of the the life change that they had received through their relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why they were able to do it. No ordinary fisherman from Galilee would have the courage to stand up to the Sanhedrin in this way. No normal person would have the courage to stand up and defy these leaders and defy their direct command to stop. And the thing is that, that is so interesting to me is that the Sanhedrin picked up on that. And what they did is they pinpointed for us and they showed us 
back in verse number 13 exactly what it was that gave these men the confidence. And this is the big thought for us today. I want you to look back at verse number 13. So it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant. <laughs> Literally translated ignorant is idiots. <laughs> it is. It's what it is. That is where we get the root word for idiots. <laughs> so they looked at them and they're like, these idiots are bold. I mean, these guys are morons, but they are bold. Okay, so they saw it. They marveled. That's why they're like, these guys are just dumb as a box of rocks. But look at these guys. Look at what they're doing. They marveled. This is unbelievable. Why? Look at this. They took knowledge of them. Here's the key phrase today, that they had been with Jesus, that they had been with Jesus. That's the key phrase right there. Here's what gave them the boldness, the fact that they had been with Jesus, the way they responded, the way they did. And the Sanhedrin recognized it is that they'd been with Jesus. Here's the thing about that Sanhedrin. Remember, they had just accused and sentenced Jesus to death. They had been there in that same place when they accused Jesus. They had seen and remembered what it was like when he sat in silence and took their abuse. They remember what it was like when Jesus would speak just a few words and how powerful it was and how it spoke to their heart and cut right to their souls. And what they saw in Peter and John was what they had already experienced in Jesus just a few months prior to that. And they saw that the difference that he had made. See, for the, uh, for the Sanhedrin, they had hoped that when they killed off Jesus, that that would have eliminated a thing, but what they did, uh, eliminated Christianity, but what they didn't understand is that now that the Holy Spirit had come, those people were now in constant communion with Jesus. It was a different relationship, and that strength that they were receiving was completely different than anything they'd ever experienced before. In fact, it goes right back to John 15 and what Jesus had said. When he continued, Jesus said in verse 25, But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now this is, remember I talked about earlier, Jesus said, If they hate you, it's because they hated me first. But look at this. But when the Comforter is come, that's the Holy Spirit. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And look at this. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Do you see the connection there? He says you're going to be under persecution. You're going to have people coming after you. But when you have that Holy Spirit, you're going to be witnesses for me. You're going to be able to fulfill what I commanded you to do in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. You're going to have what you need to go and stand with boldness. And that's what it was with these men. They were indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And that from that moment then, they were able to continue on and to uh, stand up with boldness for what God had called them to do. Through their relationship with God, they were now alive in Christ. And because of that, everything changed for them. They were no longer controlled by their selfish will. Isn't it amazing sometimes when you read about the disciples and they're following Jesus and the stupid stuff they would do? And you're like, Jesus is right there in front of you, you know? And they're making all these terrible decisions and denying him. Well, now they have the Holy Spirit, and now it's a change from within, right? It's a change from within. And now things are actually starting to happen in their lives. And they no longer then struggled uh, with their selfishness. They didn't struggle now with fear, obviously, but they were filled with boldness and filled with trust. They were no longer aimless. They were no longer hiding out. They were on mission to complete what Jesus had given them to do. And for us today, here's what I want you to get. The true evidence of our salvation is a change in our heart, in our actions, and in our will. And the reason that change takes place in us because of our salvation is um, because we finally recognize that we've been given a gift so precious 
that it should affect every aspect of our life. And that's what these disciples are now experiencing for the first time. I think if you roll it back a few months and you put those guys in front of the Sanhedrin, Peter would have been like denying it like crazy, like we saw. But now that they had the Spirit of God, they were filled with boldness and courage. And what I want to say to you today is that same Spirit that they had is the same Spirit that you have today as well and can give you the boldness that you need. You know, I wonder, that whole question of they took notice that they had been with Jesus. I wanted to ask this question because I, I was reflecting on it this week. But has there ever been a time in your life where someone took notice of you? Not because of your good looks, your fresh fit, <laughs> or your talented words, or your social media presence. But has there ever, ever been a time in your life where people took notice of you because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? And because your relationship with Christ was so evident that there was no doubt in their mind that something had changed in you, that you were motivated by something outside of the things that this world pursues. You might say, how is that even possible? How can someone take notice of my faith by watching my life? Well, here's how people do it. They watch the choices that you make. Now, we like to pretend that nobody pays attention to anybody else, right? But I know all of you pay attention to other people, <laughs> And guess what? People are paying attention to you, especially if they know that you're a Christian. And they do pay attention and they watch and they see the choices that you make. They can see the difference in the way that you talk, in the way that you speak. They can see the difference in who and what you allow to influence your life. They can see the difference in uh, how you respond to trials. I think that's probably the greatest way that Christians are revealed is how we respond to difficulty and how we respond to trials. You know, the illustration is given of, uh, of uh, you know, if, if I had a cup up here and I filled it with water all the way to the top, right? And what happens if I jiggle it a little bit? What comes out? Water, right? <laughs> Duh, right? <laughs> Very good. Well, why is that? It's because whatever you fill up with, that's what's going to come out when there's jostling, when there's difficulty. And it's the same way in the Christian life. What you fill your life with is what's going to come out in times of difficulty. I've shared with you stories of people that I know, and you know people who you're like, man, they're a great Christian, and they have a tragedy, and they're like, bloop, <laughs> you know, and you're like, whoa, what just happened here? They, they start cursing, or they just go off the rails. Someone who's been in church maybe their whole life, and they go through a tragedy, and they just walk away from it all. You're like, what's going on? Well, I believe it's because there was something that was filled up inside doubt. They're filled up with anger. They're filled up with uh, um, unforgiveness. And the thing is, is that we're often filled up with these other things rather than filled up with God and with the Holy Spirit of God. And whatever is inside is eventually going to come up. You're filled up with immorality. You're going to have some crisis. Guess what's going to come out? There's going to be some immorality, some wrong thoughts, whatever it may be, or it could be the Spirit of God. And that's really what we need to pursue is that the Holy Spirit of God would be what comes out. And that's what we see in these guys. When they're in a moment of crisis, when they're in a moment of intensity, we see them just proclaim the gospel. And that's what I hope for each of you, and that's what I hope for my own life, that when I'm in difficult situations or when I'm confronted uh, by other people or when others ask me what is going on in my life, that I would be able to respond just like these men and point them to Jesus Christ, point them to salvation, and stand for the truth then with boldness. See, our world needs the good news, doesn't it? <laughs> our world needs the gospel. Our city, our neighborhood needs the gospel. And really, how else are they going to find it unless they can see it in you. You say, well, they can Google it. Yeah, you can find the gospel by Googling. <laughs> they can, you can, definitely. Some of you, that's how you came to know Christ, just by looking things up. 
and researching it online. And I'm so thankful for that tool that we have available to us as a church today. But I would say by far, by and far, the greatest testimony and the greatest way to lead people to Christ is simply by the life that you live and the way that you influence them. And if we're going to make a difference in this city, if we're going to make a difference here for the Lord, we're going to have to be people who are salt and light, people who, when we're jostled, <laughs> it's not just like the world, something different is there. And you'll notice that in your workplace as you, as you live for Christ, as you uh, make decisions that honor and glorify Him, as you lead your family uh, to follow after God, what happens is that people will begin to take notice and then they'll come and they'll say, hey, there's something different about you. Do you know what they're doing? They're noticing that you have been with Jesus. They're noticing that you are walking with Jesus. And just like those Sanhedrin, no matter how much they hated Christ, they still saw him in Peter and John and in that man there, that, that, that crippled man. And they were able to make a difference then for the Lord Jesus Christ. These two men give us a tremendous example of how we need to respond in times of persecution. But I think the bigger lesson out of this passage is that when we walk in the Spirit, our lives then point others to God and not to ourselves. I think that's the bigger lesson that I see here. When we're persecuted, yes, we should stand up for what is right. But I think the bigger lesson is just the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. What that means is that we allow God and His Holy Spirit to direct our steps. It's not this like spooky thing that happens. <laughs> And if you're saved today, if you're a Christian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That the Holy Spirit is the one that illuminates His words. The Holy Spirit that directs us. And walking in the Spirit, being filled in the Spirit, is simply saying, God, I have this decision ahead of me. God, I, 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 uh, I have this um, situation that I'm facing. God, I have this challenge. What would you like me to do? And having that relationship with Him where we're constantly in prayer to God. And God will speak to you. He'll reveal things to you through His Word. He speaks to us through His Word. We speak to Him through prayer. And He'll teach us those things. And to me, what I see here is two men filled with the Spirit. So no matter what came their way, I mean, they could have put, a, they could have put an arrow to their head <laughs> or spear. I think they would have responded the exact same way. I, I can't help but preach the gospel. I cannot help but point others to Christ. So I wonder, is that your testimony today? Could you say... Man, I, I'm right there with Peter and John. That if somebody questioned my faith, I'd, be, I'd respond right away with the gospel. I'd just tell them, I'd be bold. Or maybe, if you're like me, <laughs> kind of the opposite of that sometimes. And I'm fearful and I'm nervous and I, I'm scared and I'm worried about it. It's because I'm allowing my flesh to control my thoughts. I'm allowing my flesh to control my decisions as opposed to God himself. So let's learn that today from John and from Peter. And I want to encourage you to be bold and courageous when it comes to persecution. We're going to see a lot of interesting persecution situations for going forward. And the common denominator is that there's always the Spirit involved in the way that they respond. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.